Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome on board the Nerdist Podcast number 443. Uh, I will be coming to a city near you. Well, it's actually just three cities, and they're near you if you are in uh, Minneapolis December 6th, Chicago December 7th, or Seattle December 13th. So if you're near any of those cities, I'm coming there. Uh, to do stand-up, go to Nerdist.com slash calendar for information on that. Also, uh, next week, December 1st, is the mid-season finale of Talking Dead, uh, which means that it's a mid-season finale of Walking Dead because those two things are inextricably linked forever. We're like the lamprey on the underside of the whale, just gingerly feasting on its nutrients. Uh, so please, please, please tune in. Robert Kirkman will be on, and Lauren Cohan, and then uh, a surprise guest. Uh, that's Talking Dead on AMC. And then, ah, screw it. At Midnight comes back January 6th. Let us promote everything. Why not? Skydart? Go for it. It's your fucking podcast. You do what you want. Hey, I like your attitude. Let's, <laughs> let's date. Oh, really? Oh, this is awkward. Chloe threw me the best birthday party. We'll have to talk about it on a hostful, but it was Doctor Who themed, and it was amazing. Thank you. It was really nice. I needed that. Uh, I'd like to thank for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast, HostGator. HostGator is your one-stop website shop. It makes it simple to get your professional website online quick. Plans start at just how much, Chloe? Oh, nine ninety-nine. <laughs> she, she doesn't know. That's why I thought it really went in. No? And it's going to make it really better when I tell you that it's $3.47 Whoa, a month. that's crazy. That's almost a third of what you said. I, I just... idiot. <laughs> no, everything, gets really mad. everything is fucking $9.99. <laughs> I just assumed. Oh. Getting a good dot com is hard to... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Why are you laughing? Because that was so awkward. You just did the... Oh. Yeah. And you did silence for a minute. And you would jump back in. Getting a good .com is hard to do. Uh, .net domain, powered by Verisa, on the other hand, still has a ton of awesome names, so get a .net, use HostGator uh, to do that, and also to build a website, and use their drag-and-drop builder, or use WordPress. There's no need to code. HostGator makes it simple, so get your site up and running with just a few clicks. Head over to HostGator.com, buy some hosting, get some .nets, and use a coupon code NERDIST to get an extra 30% off and support this show. That's HostGator.com. This episode is Commander Chris Hadfield who was up in the International Space Station from December of 2012 through May of 2013, uh, and he was commander, and he also had an incredible outreach to humanity program that he instituted uh, and essentially just gave us a really fantastic overview of what it was like to be on the ISS and also uh, made one of the most incredible videos ever with Space Oddity. I mean, it was... You've seen it. You've probably seen it. But you should go watch it again, uh, his cover of Space Oddity, which was, by the way, um, uh, it was sanctioned by Bowie himself. What? David Bowie. Was it really? Yeah, you didn't That's know that? That's amazing. No, I didn't. They're like friends now. That's incredible. Which uh, they should be. Anyway, Chris Hadfield is like, not only is he one of the smartest people that you'll ever talk to, He's so nice, and everything he says is right. Everything he thinks, and when he's on the podcast, every everything that comes out of his mouth, you're like, damn it, why are you awesome? Can I live with you and just learn how to be a better person? So, uh, Chris Hadfield, Nurse Podcast, episode number 
43. Um, Commander Hatfield has a book. It's called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. What Going to Space Taught Me About Ingenuity, Determination, and Being Prepared for Anything. It's available now wherever books are sold. Wherever you normally buy books, that's where you should get it. Here we go. Take your protein pills. Put your helmet on. Space Oddity really loses something when you just say the words. It does, a little bit. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome, Commander Hatfield. I was very excited. These two of my favorite things, Canadian and an, and an astronaut. astronaut at the same time, two. <laughs> two. I'm a twofer. It's a twofer. <laughs> it's a twofer. Well, Matthew over here is uh, is uh, a, a, a space nerd, like huge, huge, huge. Was obsessed really? with NASA, and yeah. you know, of course. And it then, doesn't have to be past tense. I can still be. Can and still then also, it. and then also the CSA. I would imagine. Yeah, of course. Love I love that that space arm. Did a lot of good for us. Space arms. <laughs> we got a, Correction, space arms. Uh, we got a whole spider full of them. We got lots of arms. <laughs> but we, you know, we as the entire world did, uh, watched you up in the. We watched you in the International Space Station. <laughs> well, I watched you at the what? same time. Oh yeah, but you couldn't really see us individually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it, it really was... Everything that you did on the space station, I think, is what all of us would have wanted to do <laughs> on the space station. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but probably, like, you know, sleep more. I would have slept more. <laughs> you know, I... First of all, I, I, I would like to... Uh, I think I have to credit Canada. Can, Canadians are some of the funniest, coolest people. And you brought a nice Canadian vibe to the space station <laughs> that I think it desperately needed as opposed to... Well, this over here is a control panel. <laughs> what else do you want? Can- Canada, I always describe as uh, taking all of America's ideals and implementing them correctly. <laughs> That's right. New York run by the Swiss. <laughs> right? Yeah. So do you, uh, do, you ha- do you have any type of comedy background at all? Or a comedy background? <laughs> no, look at me. I don't look comic at all. I look like someone who should give you a speeding ticket. No, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have any comedy background at all. I, but I grew up with two brothers and two sisters on a farm, so we invented uh, our entire social lives amongst the five of us. So, so maybe it's a self-created thing. But maybe that was good training for living on a space station. I well, don't know. Was, it a cor- it was a corn farm, right? Corn farm, yeah. Yeah, corn farm. My dad was also a pilot airline pilot but uh, yeah we lived out in the country and you know two hours on the bus back or as my son says he gives me a hard time he says oh yeah sure you used to spacewalk uphill in the snow <laughs> both ways every day <laughs> yeah when so, i was when i was your age I, but when you were his age you were actually probably piloting aircraft uh i was in fact yeah i started flying when i was a teenager and then i was uh, flying f-18s and then i was a test pilot after that so yeah through our 20s i was uh I was flying pretty amazing airplanes, having a good time doing it. What was it? What was the first plane that you piloted? Was it? Uh, were they like a, crop dusters? Or a glider, they? little glider, one, a little two-person glider. When I was fourteen, learned to fly. First solo was in a in a glider when I was the summer I turned fifteen. So, yeah, a long time ago. How long before they gave you your own power. <laughs> Next summer after that, yeah. But uh, looking back, it's amazing they trusted me to do that. But you know, the stuff I learned then, the stuff I learned about. Uh, the simplicity of flying a glider is, is so critical to everything else I've ever flown since, including the, I was the pilot of the Soyuz this year, the Russian spaceship up and back. And, and the stuff I learned back then, the, the mental checklists I learned back then, I still use when I fly a spaceship now. So it was a nice way to grow up. Which, which are some of what's on the checklist? Oh, HTMPF CGS, uh, hood, hydraulics, harness, controls, trims, temperatures. It's, you know, it's a big thing. And if you go through that in every airplane, then keep yourself out of trouble just before you go do the the dangerous stuff. Or I just won't pilot any aircraft to keep myself completely out of... Yeah, but then you don't get to uh, do all the fun stuff. No, that's true. That's true. I used to be deathly afraid of flying, and then I got over it. 
and then became enamored of it. You know, how'd you get over it? Um, because I knew that uh, just doing stand-up all over the country, all over the world, that I uh, was by going... By bus. By bus. <laughs> <laughs> that that was very time-consuming. And we hadn't mastered teleportation yet. <laughs> so I realized that if I didn't force myself to get over it, then I was going to be a very unhappy. And not performing was not an option. Yeah. So I, f- I forced myself, uh, you know, every time I got on a plane... I would I would get a little nervous and I would just try to find moments where I was calm and just focus on those moments and eventually huh. now I get tired when I get on planes. Uh, that just puts you to sleep. Yeah, no, no, like puts a dog me... in a car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you go from how did you go from the farm to uh, I mean, if you're flying at 15, do you immediately enlist in the? No, I I mean I always wanted to fly in space. I wanted to be an astronaut. I was inspired as a kid by the space race and Neil and Buzz walking on the moon. So I always had it as this impossible long-term hope and dream. And that's part of the reason I learned to fly as a teenager because I thought you fly in space, so got to learn how to fly. Uh, but by the time I finished high school, I was I was tired of school, and I, I finished a little young, skipped a grade. So I took a year off and went and uh, hitchhiked and took trains around Europe and tried to figure out what I wanted to you do. Might the, you might be the most successful person I've ever met who took a year off. <laughs> yeah, gap year. But you didn't miss that part. He skipped a grade. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but still. He skipped a grade Even and he was flying people. when he was 14. Yeah. Even those people end up uh, in Brooklyn with a trust fund. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're when you're when you're kind of uh, tooling around Europe on a train, what what's going through your mind? I did it for a long time, and I remember uh, sitting at one of the seven wonders of the world, which is in Turkey. This this temple of Diana, Diana, which uh, just incredible. These huge uh, marble blocks that most of which have been knocked down by uh, by history and earthquakes and such. I spent a whole day sitting there just thinking about uh, the ancient history that we're all the product of but also where are we going and what do you do and what's what's important in life and i think during experiences like that is where i really said you know i do want to pursue the things that are important to me i really do want to make this work if, if there's any way to make it happen in my life and so i came back and um uh, joined the air force went to military academy which in canada is called the royal military college and uh, kind of ardently pursue even though even at that point canada still didn't have an astronaut program it still wasn't a thing i just hadn't signed up for yet it didn't exist but i thought yeah you know maybe someday it will and the shuttles coming down the pike looks like in a few years so i just uh, started pursuing it and Amazingly enough, this year I commanded a spaceship. Well, the CSA was... <laughs> Little did you know, the Soyuz would still be flying. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> but the, C- the CSA is only about 24 years old, Yeah, maybe? there was no Canadian Space Agency. Yeah. It, it was like a subset of the National Research Council. We'd launched some satellites at that point, but that was it. So we were... We were early into the space business in Canada. We were third to have a satellite in orbit, but even still, we did it pretty small time. Didn't have our own launch rockets and always had to do it in partnership. And we sure didn't have anything like an astronaut program. Mm. Um, But things changed with the shuttle. We built the arm on the shuttle, got an invitation for Canadians to be astronauts, hired a class in 83. I still wasn't ready. But in 92, uh, they stuck an ad in the newspapers across Canada that said, wanted Astronauts. (laughs) Astronauts. <laughs> so I applied. It's so quaint. <laughs> it's, nice, huh? it's very, very quaint. That's what it was. Yeah. It's amazing that that wasn't just a weird. <laughs> it yeah, just like, wasn't a weird like spy trap, <laughs> like on Craig, <laughs> Craigslist, right? Yeah, exactly. You're, you're essentially, under, oh, essentially yeah. Craigslist. You, you <laughs> Come claim your free boat. Actually, we have an outstanding warrant. We're here to arrest you. <laughs> you. You responded to what the then version of a Craigslist ad was, yeah. and then you got to then you got to go into space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, and there's nothing in between those two steps. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Here's your helmet. <laughs> Engine starts in 10 minutes. How many yeah. guys showed up? Eh, just a couple of us. Yeah, we were just we were just over getting hot dogs right outside the train in Toronto. We've uh, got a couple of rockets from Estes. We're going to put them on. They're all D, so they're big. Uh, we're going to launch it. Fun. So when it, you know, when it looked like it might actually happen, and you're sort of helping to pioneer this program. Were there? Did you? You don't strike me as the kind of guy who really has a lot of doubts. You seem like you kind of know exactly what you want. But was were, were you nervous, or was there any fear, or what did you have to overcome? The whole thing looks so linear and preordained, and it is neither, not at all. I mean, if people 
sort of started to view the space program as a as guarantee or some regular thing, not realizing just how risky and unlikely each shuttle launch was. And we were at the mercy of every single one. Any one of those that went badly or had a serious problem, and we were never going to go do it again. So an enormous effort to make every single one of those happen. And um, the most nervous I've ever been for space launches is watching all the other ones go. When you're on board, you have a a hand in your own destiny, and you've trained for it, and you know all the reactions you have to have. And and you know there's a risk, but you know what you're going to do about it. Sort of you sitting on the airplane, at first it was terrifying, but when you do it and you get really right into it, then you no longer feel um, helplessly scared. Standing, watching other my friends of mine get on space shuttles and go, or just watching a rocket launch, where all I could really do was like uh, clench and unclench my fists. You know, that's my entire come on, come on kind of feeling. That uh, it still terrifies me to watch somebody else go to space. But uh, but by the time I got to go. They taught me so many things, uh, and we had so many things that we had to do uh, as things went right and went wrong that you're all wrapped up in it. And it's really not a terrifying thing at all. It's, it's, uh, it's like a snowballing feeling of success. Every little step, hey, that worked, and now this worked, and now this worked, and you just get this great, roaring, increasing feeling of, of inevitable um, pride at what's going on. And it's really contagious, and it's a great feeling on board um, when – as through the whole two weeks of a shuttle flight, magnificent group of people doing something barely possible. Well, how do you uh, how do you get a guitar aboard? <laughs> <laughs> On my first flight, I uh, I was going to help build the Russian space station Mir, and they had this old guitar on Mir back from one of their early space stations from Salyut. They transferred it over to Mir, really oh, crappy wow. old acoustic made in Saint Petersburg. So I'd heard about it. A friend of mine, who's a classical guitarist, was on board. A guy named German named Tomas Reiter. Uh, I saw this guitar made up in Eugene, Oregon, called a soloette. Kind of a weird thing. It's just just a fretboard, and there's not even a body that has like three coat hangers that plug in that look like a guitar. So it feels like a guitar against your body. So I called Roscoe Wright, who runs the company. He cut one of these guitars in half for me so that it would fit inside a shuttle locker. I took it up to the space station, reassembled it like like a sniper rifle up there, put it all together, <laughs> and then presented it to the crew of Mir. And we spent one whole great evening up there uh, playing that bad old guitar from St. Petersburg and this cool guitar made in Eugene, Oregon. And, and uh, singing songs. Oh, and at first we didn't, you know, what do you play when people fall? So you pl- you play Beatles. It's right, easy. Yeah. Yeah, just play Beatles. Everybody knows the song. Right. And uh, But it really reinforced, I've been a musician my whole life, but it really reinforced to me how important uh, the art side is, how important the cultural side is. We're not just building space stations, but it's people up there. And the, the celebrated laughter and joy of, uh, of music amongst all the rest of that was really important. So when I went up to live on the space station this last time, uh, NASA actually put the guitar on the station. It's there as part of our psychological support. And nice. uh, it was just great to have on board, and I played it pretty much every day. Yeah, I guess that, that it is, you know, when... At least, I think when most people think of of um, living in space, it's science, 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 science. We're trying to figure it out. We're seeing what the effects are. We're studying the Earth. We're studying the stars. We're studying everything. We're studying engineering. Um, but to actually stop and and just be humans yeah. in space as a community. Um, I get antsy when I'm on the road and I don't have a guitar. I get real antsy. Like, yeah, it's exactly like, the same like thing. Like two or three days. But I know I'm just saying, like, to go up there, I can't imagine for 166 days not to have a Well, I can't imagine 166 days, period. I mean, like, it's – I can't even imagine – I'm not sure I'd make it. I'm not sure I would be able to it, – it feels a little claustrophobic. It feels a lot claustrophobic to me. And just the feeling of um, – Oh, we uh, we're we're. It's almost like being stuck in a large elevator for a really <laughs> well, long picture time. Picture you were taking that bus ride across the country, and you're working in the engine of the bus. Like you're down in amongst the engine, and you're doing critical stuff. You're you're making the whole engine work. You don't see anything except the engine. You're working away, but then you realize, hey, I got five minutes. The engine's working. And you pull yourself up to like a dome that sticks out of the bus as you're crossing the prairie or, or the Mississippi or something. And you pull your head under that dome for a minute and you watch something going by and you take some pictures of it and you think about it. And then you go back to the work again. It's sort of like that on the space station, yeah. but it's the whole world going by. And you're, we're working away. We're doing 200 experiments and we're, you know, we're, we're trying to serve the real purposes that the station is there. But at the same time... Uh, the shared humanity of it is what really matters. 
and and you pull yourself into the window and watch you take nine minutes to watch the entire North American continent roll by underneath oh you at, at five miles a second. and Or watch, you get a sunrise every 90 minutes, so you time it and you get your camera all set and you watch the sun, because you're upside down, you watch the sun drop out of the earth and, and the whole horizon just erupts into flame. The solar rays on the space station, they glow blood red and then they come down through orange and yellow and then start glistening in like this blue, um, like like the wings of a butterfly. It's just gorgeous and it just keeps happening over and over again and with with social media and the technology now i could share it and that was the best part being able to not just keep it to myself but to let people see what's going on and what the world looks like well it's kind of it's it's kind of melt someone's brain a little bit <laughs> just to, to have this experience and of course be social animals but then not be able to share it with anyone and be like i well, you know, there must all, not enough people uh, on my I, first flight we had film cameras so i get this beautiful picture of whatever of the outback and i take this great picture of the outback and it's film so i'm going well i, I think it was a good picture and then get back to earth two weeks later and send it to the lab and they process it and they send me negatives two weeks later and I'm rolling through the negatives I'm going I think that was the picture and then they make me a 35 millimeter slide of it two weeks later so now it's like three months later and I've got a 35 millimeter slide going I'd like to show the people in Australia this but (laughs) and and I didn't have to communicate with people I had a ham radio so it's 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 hard to mass communicate with a ham radio, what you know. Was, it's, what was so, your call sign? Uh, Victor Alpha three zero zero G zero G Q on your space station <laughs> dial. So uh, so I still have those thirty five millimeter slides from my first space flight, but it's so hard to share the experience. And now it, you can invite people on board to to see and feel what it's like, and and it was contagious. Millions of people happily came on board to to get a sense of, of what we're doing and, and what we all look like from there. Well, I, I hope you understand what a tremendous service to humanity that was. I mean, to you know, obviously we've seen uh, you know, we've seen much more official like government space films and every once in a while like, <laughs> oh hey, from the Oscars, from the space station, they're waving, <laughs> yeah, you know, and right. it's it's the juddery you right. know. But but to actually get a sense of, you know, what it's like and then Maneuvering and essentially like a habit trail, uh, <laughs> you know, which which it seems like. How do you even how do you even orient yourself? It's cool to come around the corner in weightlessness because uh, you you pull your it's it's it is like a habit trail because each piece had to fit in the back of the shuttle and they're all bolted together like a bunch of city buses all bolted together in weird orientations. So you come around the corner and everyone's standing on the wall. And at first, it seems, or standing on the ceiling, just because in weightlessness, you just line up with whatever experiment you're doing or whoever you're talking to. It's maybe like a real complicated wreck that you're scuba diving in, where you keep pulling yourself around the corner, and there's no up or down, and there's no real floor. It's completely arbitrary to what you do. But it's so much fun, too, because you can, you can push off the wall and fly. You know, you can fly <laughs> the whole time. You can do 100 somersaults. You can... You can spin somebody up so they're just like a pinwheel. It's just pranks. Yeah. Oh yeah. Pranks. Or take a little ast- take a little astronaut, put him in the middle of the room, and then let him go. And, and there's no way to get yourself back to the wall. You're you're just hazing, hazing, hazing the new astronaut guy. Astronaut hazing. Yeah. It's, it's so much, so much, just raw fun to be up there. You'd love it. Does it affect your dreams being weightless? Do you do, you, do you, like does the sensation of being weightless or going to sleep is is bizarre because uh, you don't need a mattress naturally, and there's not even a down to lie down. You you uh, float into your sleeping bag, and I just tied my sleeping bag to the wall with two shoelaces, one at the top and one at the bottom. So you kind of float down into it. It's got a big zipper. It's got armholes in it, so you can zip yourself up, and then you just relax everything. Your muscles, your arms float up, oh, your wow. head tips forward, your legs come up a little. Every single muscle's relaxed, like floating in a you know, beautifully warm swimming pool where you never have to take a breath. You just float and relax, and, uh, and it's, it's exquisitely comfortable. You don't have to roll over. Uh, some of the astronauts, though, after 40 years of having a pillow, they can't sleep without a pillow, so they actually put a pillow against their ear and belt it to their head. So they're, <laughs> just, so they're floating weightless in space with this pillow belted to their head because they're used to the they comfort of the it. feeling of it. <laughs> but it's, it's a great place to sleep. It's... Uh, it's uh, completely relaxing. But if you close your eyes and you stay awake for a bit, you'll see flashes of light. And it's uh, high-energy 
particles coming from the universe, radiation going through your optic nerve. So you can actually see the radiation going through your body when because the atmosphere isn't there to protect us. So it's pretty. But <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's okay, right? It's yeah, probably it's, okay. I can imagine the first astronauts that saw that back in Apollo, they probably went, I'm not telling anybody I'm seeing flashes. <laughs> I can just hear two of them at some point going, do you, do you see flashes? No, when you, no, 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 I don't. Oh, oh, you see flashes? No, <laughs> I guess it's not just me. Mike, just calm down and drive. <laughs> Are you making Michael Collins jokes? I love Michael. <laughs> well, we've had um, uh, we've had we've had a few. We had Buzz on. Yeah. Uh, we had Mike Massimino on yeah. the podcast uh, as well. I them both. Yeah. Uh, it's great. Really great guys. Yeah. Are astronauts in general just good dudes? Like <laughs> like the ones that we've had on just seem like really like Massimino. Mass. Yeah, you would never know he was an astronaut if you talked if you just he, talked to he's, him. He's got a PhD and he is it's super a, super accomplished. Super guy, but, smart but, guy. But yeah. But he's really good on Big Bang Theory. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Mass. Mass is he's an. Uh, as far as good guy astronauts go, he's he's an aberration. He's as good as it gets. He's just such such good company. I think uh, were were you you probably weren't surprised by the response to the social media interaction. No, I was surprised. I I hope people would take an interest. And uh, my wife and I have a 27 year old son. He's 28 now. Who uh, who kind of drove it? I, I all I did was take pictures or look at something cool and write something about it and post it via Twitter. And Twitter's great for a space station because because it doesn't take much bandwidth. You know, you'd write a quick message, take a picture, and send, and you're done. And then he would take that and then put it through all the other sites and spread it to the world. Or if I took a great picture of a fire in Australia or something, he would contact his media friends down there and say, hey, there's a great picture coming from the space station, and here's the storyline behind it. So he really let people know what we were doing, but then it became a contagion. And, I mean, millions and millions of people started following, which was more no more than a hope when we launched. But I was really delighted to see the level of... Uh, of interest, and it's not that the level of interest changed; it's the level of access changed. People could actually come on board and see, and uh, and so for me, it was just a reflection of of uh, what I'd seen in schools, you know, where I spoke there for the last twenty years. People are interested; you just have to let them see what we're doing, and uh, and uh, the uh, social media response was evidence of that. Well, it, it brought humanity to the space program, mm -hmm. as opposed to where I think a lot of us always. Think, oh, astronaut space program. It's, you know, it's literally up here, right. and then also socially up here and philosophically yeah. up here. But you brought it down, and and gave everyone a sense of, you know, like if we were to have larger colonies in space, this is what it would be like. And these were the, and even the um, um, the the uh, the lady who took over command, um, whose name I can't remember at the moment. I'm so sorry. Sonny Williams, maybe or Peggy She. She took over the video duties once. Once you, oh, oh, Karen Nyberg. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And so it was. It was kind of walking through with her, and then having her explain, in in very clinical, like how the toilet works and yeah. this cone, and like, and yeah. if you're sick, it's not pleasant. Like she's explaining all these things, <laughs> yeah. things you wouldn't normally think of. Yeah. Of you know, like that things that we take for granted. Oh, if you don't feel good, you just lie down and you just you know you got the. But if anything goes wrong, it really is uh, a big deal. Yeah, we. We spend way more time than anybody thinks getting ready to fly in space. It is a huge, complex process. I'd learn to do surgery, learn how to uh, do dental work, learn to deal with burns. I worked in the emergency ward in the hospital in Houston, sewing people up, coming in, just just in case we ran into that on board. Photography, all the different cameras, geology and geography of the world, orbital mechanics, how to reprogram computers on board, everything. you got to learn it all. And plumbing, fixing the toilet, which I did three times, I think, while I was up there, and <laughs> and uh, and all the technical stuff. So it it's a lot of training and preparation. But when it comes right down to it, it is people just want to know what what does it mean and what is it like? And so I spent uh, every evening and weekend putting together little videos of how to cut my fingernails or how you get a haircut or how you throw up or whatever you're going to do in space. How is it different? Throwing up is different. On Earth, nobody ever throws up lying on their back if they can help it because right. it's, it's not a good idea. <laughs> but if, think about it. If you put a barf bag in front of your head and throw up into it and there's no gravity, the barf is going to go out, bounce off the end of the bag, and come straight back up <laughs> into your face because there's nothing to hold it in the bag. So it's a messy thing throwing up without gravity. And so we have special barf bags with great big absorbent towels built in to, to clean, up, clean up the mess. And it's, it's silly and small time, but... 
it's also just kind of interesting how we've solved all the problems and, and what it's like to live off the planet. And, uh, and a lot of people were interested in those small details. Like, what, what is, is there another weird kind of thing that people wouldn't normally think they would, they would have to deal with that is a big deal when you're on a space station? <laughs> uh, so we exercise about uh, two hours a day. And one of the things we exercise on is a treadmill. Of course, you can't run on a treadmill without gravity. So this has huge elastics that hold you down on your shoulders and your hips. But you need running shoes. It's the only time you put on shoes because uh, you use your feet like a monkey up there. But you need shoes to run. Think about putting shoes on an earth. You, you plunk your rear end onto something, and then you lean down and you do up one shoe. Well, uh, when you're doing up a shoe, both your hands are busy and one of your feet is busy while you're doing up a shoe. So there's nothing to hold you when you're in weightlessness. So you can always look at someone who's about to exercise on the treadmill because they're floating around with this uncontrolled mass in an ungainly position trying to get their shoe done up while the other shoe <laughs> is taken off somewhere and bouncing. I'm, and I tried for five months to become elegant at putting my shoes on, and I never did. I was always this, this clumsy uh, floating spider banging into stuff trying to get my shoe done up. So even the most mundane thing becomes comical. Uh, you'd think after five months I could do up my shoes in space, but I, I was still uh, I was still clumsy at it after all that time. Was it hard? Now the way you describe it, which is, I mean, you, you describe the experience beautifully. Did, was there any part of you that thought, eh, I just want to stay up here for another five months? Oh are you yeah, to come back. Well. Uh, it's a measured thing, right? I knew I was going to be up there five months. Uh, we had this huge body of work to get done. Four days become home, before we came home, we had to do an emergency spacewalk, and we responded and kind of saved the life of the station. I mean, it was a great feeling of having a huge menu of stuff we got to get done and getting it all done plus. So by the time it was the day that we're coming home, I felt completely ready to come home just because we had served well but if someone had said hey you got to stay up another month or another three months that would have been great also because it's just such a rich experience it, it wasn't like i was tapping my toes or you know waiting for waiting for the bus to leave it was uh, it's just a great uh and if they asked me to go again i would i would go again absolutely it's a well, great in a way, experience it's almost like being a pioneer where it's a, where you're, you're there's not probably not a it's probably not a ton of leisure time there's probably a lot of Every day, it's like we have to make sure that we're all surviving. We have to make sure that everything's running properly. We have to make sure that we're doing all the work that we need to do every day. Yeah. Oh, it is it is busy. And there's this uh, schedule on the computer. It's called OSTPV, which I, I don't even know what that acronym stands for, Procedures Viewer. But anyway, it is everybody's schedule for the entire five months down to five-minute increments. What you're doing this five minutes, what you're doing the next five minutes, and there's this red line that moves across. And it's like a, uh, an evaluation of you all the time. How are you doing? Are you ahead? Or are you behind? Are you, how are the other crew members doing? And it's an interesting way to lead your life when there's a huge thousands of people on the ground in the mission controls in Moscow and Tokyo and Houston, all over the place, and they're all watching that red line move across <laughs> as you work your way through every single day up there. It's, 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 you're a human video game. Yeah. <laughs> you're essentially, they're watching you like a video game. Yeah, I'm some sort of Mario Brothers trying to work his way <laughs> through all of the obstacles they're throwing at us and trying to, or whatever, whack-a-ball up there, trying to beat down whatever the next thing is that they've popped up. Uh, but at the end of each day, you can look back and go, I got all those things done plus, and uh, I found it really uh, both a huge challenge but also really satisfying to do also. How does the human brain perceive time in space? It it was different. We go around the world 16 times a day, which means you get in the shadow half the time and in the sun half the time. So you get 16 sunrises every day, 16 sunsets. So you're completely screwed up for day-night cycles, right? And there's no way to no way to balance your life based on that. And you have to arbitrarily to choose when's morning and when's evening. We, we arbitrarily split it, sort of split the pain between Houston and Moscow. So we chose London, England, Greenwich time. So we live on London time. Uh, and my watch would go off at six o'clock in the morning. And then there's, it, it's like, uh, it's sort of like horses coming out of the gate. You know, you've got, you've got this big racetrack of a day planned and you got all this stuff to do. And, and, and there's almost no self-determinism in it. You got this, all of these wickets to jump through. Maybe it's like a steeplechase and, uh, and you work your way through the whole day. There's, there's little periods that are for you, get cleaned up in the morning, do your exercise, but mostly it's just just to get all of these things done. And it's not till about eight or nine at night that you're, uh, you can like stop and exhale and uh, start getting ready for the next day. And all the videos that I did or the music that I recorded was all done in that little gap between nine at night and, um, and whenever I fell asleep, one in the morning or whatever, and then get ready for the next day. And then 
repeat and just did that seven days a week for the whole uh, five months. I would imagine, you know, if it's like four o'clock in the morning and I have to pee in the middle of the night, then I'm sort of like, oh, I don't feel like getting out of bed. All right. But you really, that is something that you really have to think of because it's a process. It is legitimately a process for you. So how do you know at four in the morning that you have to pee? If you think about it, it's interesting. It's because of the weight of the urine on your bladder and on the valve in your bladder. And sometimes you notice when you stand up, you go, wow, I really have to pee. When you stand up, it's because the weight has moved to actually be over top of the valve that drains your bladder. And so the little sensors in there are like screaming at you. When you're weightless, you got none of those sensors. Your urine has no weight. So the only way that you know you have to pee is because of this weird distended feeling of your stomach. You look, and when I first, the first time I flew in space, I was like, what is wrong with my stomach? I'm going, oh, I have to pee. I didn't realize this, this is the new clue for a, you have to pee. Okay. Um, so, it, but then the beauty of it is because you're weightless, you can pee upside down if you want. You go into, and of course you do in the bathroom. Finally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> About time. Finally. Yeah, so you, you, you play with everything. It's just too much fun. Now, when did you get the idea to record? Um, I mean, the, the Space Oddity is one of those things that, it, like, every couple months, you can watch it again yeah. and just get yeah. chills again. I mean, it is... It was the most perfect, yes, that's what someone should do up there. You did exactly. <laughs> you picked the right song. And, see, you know, just seeing the, just seeing the earth in yeah. the background and just yeah. everything about it really gave that song more life than it had before. Uh, yeah, it's and Bowie himself, I've been in contact with him, and he, he thinks it's the best the song's ever been done, which is just scary for me, like mm-hmm. huge praise. But it wasn't my idea. In fact, it was everybody's idea. Uh, as soon as I recorded a Christmas carol when I first got up there that my brother and I wrote called Jewel in the Night. And as soon as, and I just, it was just a really rough recording. I was seeing if the iPad and GarageBand worked up there. And so I just recorded it and put it, my son put it on SoundCloud. And when people heard that uh, you could record music up there, they immediately on social media started sending notes in, you got to record Space Oddity. I was like, Space Oddity? Why would I do that song? One, it has huge production value. I can't do it justice. And two, it's the astronaut dies. You know, <laughs> I don't want to sing a song about being lost and dying in space. But uh, my son convinced me. Evan convinced me, and uh, he rewrote the words so the astronaut lived, and he brought the words up to date a little bit. And then we got permission from Bowie to make the video out of it. And it was two musicians on the ground that put the instrumentals underneath, M. Greiner and Joe Corcoran, who just did a great job. We had, a, I thought, was just a killer audio version, way better. It was, I'd, I'd just done it, you know, laying my vocal tracks on orbit. As soon as we got that audio version, then son Evan weighed back in and said, you've got to do video. You're in space. It's got to be video. <laughs> Otherwise, it could have just been a, you know, a studio. So one weekend, I, I just uh, grabbed the camera and the guitar and my version of it and went around and sang the song a bunch and thought, you know, what would make this place, uh, you know, show what it really is? What, what would... What does it look like to sing music floating around for real in space? And, uh, and I sent them all down. The Canadian Space Agency spent days, nights getting all the video processed, approved, gave it to my son and his editor, and they um, they put that together. And then they, they asked me once more. They said, we need you with the world in the background. We need you to get in the cupola, get that shot. And it was a misery to set up because it's so bright in there. And we don't have, like, a studio or something. <laughs> so I grabbed two of these super bright lights. And if you look real close at the video, you can see they're like an inch from my face on each side. So as I was recording the ones in the cupola, those clips in the cupola, I couldn't see anything, nothing at all. I'd, I would like turn on the video camera and then pretending I could see, but I was completely blind with these things in my face just, just singing that. But uh, I had no idea how to expose it, but it just came out nice. Uh, the, it worked out just right. The light on my face and the light from the world behind ended up luckily balancing just right. And they put it together, and we ended up releasing it the day before I came back from space, and it just went went crazy. Well, it is. I mean, it does. It taps into that... Um it taps into that thing that we have as humans of like, oh, there's a thing that's bigger than us. Is just is feeling is feeling very small in the universe, yeah. but like, but not in a not in a fearful way, but in a it's a perspective in a perspective. Like, there's perspective, and it's 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 a respect and awe for wow, yeah. we're so tiny, and that's the beauty of because I feel that all the time in space. You feel that respect and awe for where you are. I've been out on two spacewalks. And to be uh, alone in between the world, which is just this huge omnipresent thing above you with all the colors, 
and the universe is normally above us on Earth. We look up at the night sky. But imagine if you look down and around at the night sky so that it's yawning below you and beside you, and you're in between that and the world. The, the sense of place and perspective is, is just so humbling to be out there, and it's just so inherently gorgeous. And it all comes in through your eyes. It's the only sense that does you any good when you're out on a spacewalk. It's just a phenomenal place to be. And the video somehow linked the the art of what Bowie was thinking about and the and the melody of the music, and it somehow linked it with the reality of what we're doing. Because this it wasn't a special effect; it wasn't just a production value thing. This was the reality of what people are doing uh, up on the space station, overlaid with with sort of iconic human art. And I think that's why you can watch it every couple of months and sort of get refreshed by it because because it's for real. Well, when you when you know videos that seem to get passed around a lot are ones where people go, "Oh, there's some superlative special quality about this yeah. that this was in some way really hard to achieve." Right? Oh, someone does some sort of a crazy stunt, or yeah, it's, or it's like the best thing you've ever seen, or the worst thing you've ever seen, or the most horrific. It's like there's some superlative element to it. But when you watch that, and you go, "Holy crap! That's." That's spe- that one guy could have done that. That was yeah. the guy, and there yeah. it is. And that was a unique, that was a unique moment in time. So I'm really pleased. All those people said you got to do space oddity, and that my son just every week would say, "So how's that oddity video coming, Dad? Get that thing done up there, because time's a wasting." Uh, kind of man in the space station. Yeah, up here. That's exactly what I. I'm busy. I'm doing stuff. We got experiments. You know, I'm not up here to make videos. But, uh, you know, looking historically, we got a lot of stuff done, and we set records for the amount of science done. But uh, as far as impact and showing people the perspective that the space station brings back on all of us, that video may be as important as anything we did, amazingly. Well, enough. it is because it, it, it you know, anything – and, and I, I'm, I'm certain that the – I'm hoping that the government space agencies understand that the social connection to the rest of our culture yeah. – having an interest in i mean if it's if it's just all science 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 then you know people might go oh, that's interesting but not not really be able to connect right. with it and right. so now people are connected with the space station in a way that they weren't before which is important to the program I, i've been doing it for a long time i was an astronaut for 21 years you know which is longer than just about anybody stays in the business and but right up until my last day, I was doing my absolute best to include everybody in it. I, I would sit at my desk at lunch and turn on Skype and dial into uh, schools and have lunch while they were there eating their peanut butter sandwiches. I'd eat mine. I figured I'm sitting at my desk. All I'm doing is like reading Google News anyway. Why don't I talk to people? And so I called it uh, on the lunch pad, and I, I, we did it with hundreds of schools. <laughs> so even when I was in Russia, I'd get back from class and sit down and have my dinner and Skype in with, with elementary schools because if you're not – showing people the opportunities that exist, especially when you're one of the privileged few that get to go do them, then you are doing a disservice to them. And so I, I did my best to share it. And that's in you know, my five months on station. It was one of my mandates was let's share this thing. Let's show people what's up here. Because you can't support or not support a space station if you don't even know it exists. you got to let people see what it really is and, and judge for themselves. And a lot of people judged uh, thumbs up, which was nice to the, see. <laughs> what is the data rate transfer like going from it's pretty high it depends which satellite you're talking through but we increased it by by a factor of 100 while we were up there so that now you can just barely stream youtube from the space station yeah yeah you can it's if you get everything working right and it's not being used for a lot of other stuff but when i made one of those uh videos you know if i did a bunch of clips of the video it would take all night to transfer back down to the ground again it's that sort of level of you know it's it's hd video so fairly yeah. high memory but but it would take they but if if it was a quiet night or something then they would just set up the link and transfer all the video down to the ground so it's it's quick enough it's it's not like you know uh, like you'd like it to be yeah. but it sure is better than it used to be better than a ham radio and a yeah. and a uh, and a film camera i like how much pressure you put on all the other astronauts now like <laughs> damn it now i got a skype i was oh hadfield why would you do this now everyone really has a responsibility to i mean it cover is cover a bowie song <laughs> <laughs> well it is you know what though when you think about it it is really like social charity work in a sense where you're coming from this place of privilege and you're sharing this experience to the rest of us who are, you know, philosophically underprivileged in the sense that we are not up in space. I recognize the privilege of being there. Absolutely. All the astronauts do. And some guy, you know, everyone's got their own personality. Some guys just, they want to be the absolute best at everything they're doing up there. 
but they're not they're not you know social media communicators it's just, just not their nature so you can't expect everybody to do the same thing some guys are so much better at some of the skills things than i am and people focus on what they're good at um but people are putting in a concerted effort. Karen Nyberg was up there, took some gorgeous pictures of the world. And uh, Luca Parmentano, they just landed recently. He also, and, you know, pe- people are doing the best that they can. But, uh, you know, there's not many of us, and, yeah. and we're way out there. And, uh, and it, it's a busy, interesting place. Um, and but I just I just did what I thought made sense for my particular skill set. Well, there's only a hand. I mean, there, there really is a small, you know, of... Of scientists, there's a, a you know a slightly <laughs> there's a smaller subset of scientists who also possess the ability to communicate to people you know people like yourself and Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah. or Massimino or Bill right. Nye or people who are you know uh, men and women of science who actually possess the ability to convey that in the way that people communicate like in right. layman's terms who aren't yeah. so engineery that like i don't understand why you don't understand why this doesn't work it's just this simple drop down menu and then you navigate to these five different areas skinny black tie yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah i recognize that but i went uh, i was in new york a couple weeks ago i went to uh tumblr a really innovative social media site sure and the ceo's 27 i think and everybody in there you know they've worked there two years the oldest person there and they've generated a tremendous amount of wealth and interest and capability and what was really uh, refreshing for me was that none of them are astronauts, but every single one of them is super inspired by the space program and by that opportunity and that this is something that's on the edge of our society. That, that motivation that drove them to you know, get into the techie side of things and to try and figure out how to share it, they are motivated when, our, when you have within your civilization somewhere this type of opportunity available and so for me it just redoubles the necessity to try and communicate it to people to let young folks see that this is something that exists and and then the inherent drive and the contagion of it that it, that it brings to young people well with uh, with uh, commercial space flight you know coming to yeah. the edge of the atmosphere and how far off do you think we are or are we it will it ever happen that there will be um, you know, like uh, consumer-friendly space stations where people can essentially go and oh. be like in a space resort. Yeah, it's it's like asking that exact same question a hundred years ago about aviation, right? You're talking to Blario or the Wright brothers, going, "Hey, so you know, do you think we'll ever be able to fly across the Atlantic, or can I ever just buy a ticket and go for a flight?" And they hadn't invented everything yet; they could fly. But, you know, they, it was really scary and risky at the time. And that's where we are in spaceflight. And Richard Branson is the guy who's trying to break out of that mold. Because right now the only customer is the government. Even Elon Musk with SpaceX, his, he's trying to get through that as well, where, where it becomes cheap enough that you can sell to somebody besides a government. But Richard Branson with the Virgin Galactic, which has got to be the greatest name ever, Virgin, <laughs> just, just, just for imagery, Virgin Galactic. But he... Uh, He's trying to make it accessible to private citizens. And he's, he's saying September they should be launching the first people up right bottom edges of space. It's not orbital, but it's the critical first step. And it's a lot of people spend money on a car that, that is the same price as a trip to space. You right. Know, what is it, about 200 grand? Yeah, about 200 grand. But there are a lot of people buy cars that, you know, and it's, it's obviously a pure luxury item, but there's enough people around that I yeah. think he may there's have a business model. There's enough people that model. own more than one Bentley. Yeah. Well, yeah. I that, mean, it, yeah. And, yeah. And then it's just sort of that, it's, it's, it's just sort of that, um, uh, that graph of consumerism where it's like the more, you know, it, the, the more people do it, the more the price will start to come well, down. Well, then and the we'll be able, yeah, he's, he's invented a, a different type of rocket engine for that thing, yeah. the people at Scaled Composites that are working on it up yeah. in Mojave. And um, and so that's the way it has to go. You it's, need that, that, that built all the railways and the roads with the government, which is what NASA has done. And now you're starting to open up to, to true private enterprise. And, and to think and, about and it, that's too, where like, we're headed. Like telling like Alan Shepard or someone saying, look, this thing you did in Mercury, we're going to sell tickets to that. Yeah. And that's basically what it <laughs> yeah, is. It's exactly like the first Mercury shot. Because they just went up for a couple yeah, minutes. Yeah, they, they were suborbital. They just went yeah. up and fell down. But now we're at the point, hopefully... 
where they can make it safe enough and just affordable enough for a certain part of society that it's that first step. For most people, it's still too expensive, but that's how the first steps always go. You know, the first luxury liners or the first transportation. Yeah. First computer? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it, you need to get it going and open it up and then let, let the free willing minds of people see ways to make it cheaper. And that's, that's what they're doing. And I'm, I'm all for it. Well, especially, you know, the technology curve is so much steeper now than it was, you know, when between Kitty Hawk and then when, when, when there was commercial air travel was not really that long. Yeah. Like the period, the period in between those two events. And then, you know, the period in between like large computers with vacuum tubes between, you know, the microchip, it was really just a handful of a few decades. And so now because the technology curve is so steep, I would imagine that that'll once it happens for the first time, it'll start. I yeah. hopefully it'll we, is 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 privatize um, is is privatizing space travel uh, is, is what are the good points and what are the bad points? Uh, yeah, you could say it about any of those other examples too. The, the good points is. What is the point of it all? The, the point of it all is the human experience. What does it bring to us? You know, what, what is the point of everybody getting on airplanes and going on vacation somewhere else? You know, why? What's the point of that? It enriches the individual human experience. You you get more understanding of what it is to be alive as a person. You know, the the variety of things that you can expose yourself to during your life, and to be able to see the world. Uh, separately from it to start getting that perspective of course is hugely individually rewarding but i think it's really good for us as a species also you know it's hard to hate somebody if you've gone and got got to know them and and it's it's even hard to think of us and them when when you've been somewhere it just becomes all part of us and so when you see the world like i've had a chance to or or mass has or or buzz aldrin who you mentioned where you've seen the place as one where i've been around it 2500 times the whole thing starts to become us. So that perspective is important, I think, both personally and societally. The negatives are, of course, right now it's risky, and uh, and trying to get it going is going to be really hard. And the management of it, it's going to be this huge, you know, like setting up air travel. Think of how complex air travel is now with air traffic control and all of the regulatory bodies and all of the things that are necessary and the pollution side of it and the stuff we put in the atmosphere, all of just the realities of dealing with the technology. But it's still judged by our society to be worthwhile. And space travel will be the same thing. We're just still in the early Wright Brothers wobbly phase of it and haven't figured out how to, how to get there easier and cheaper. And Do you think we're 10 safely. years off or like 50 years off? We have to invent a new type of engine. So, you know, like go from propellers to jets. Right. And if you'd asked me in 1910, how long is it going to be before we invent jet engines? Would have gone, well, what are jet engines? <laughs> and, and in fact, it took about 40 years. Oh, wow. From the time the Wright brothers in 1903 until the earliest jets were, were – and they were driven by the Second World War. A huge amount of money put into developing them because, for, to get airplanes that could use them in the war. So it really wasn't until the 50s that jet engines were commercially viable and we started flying the, the big airplanes across the Atlantic. 40 years or 50 years. So it, it could easily be 40 years before we get to that next clever invention. Or maybe the guys in the particle accelerators in CERN or something will come up with the answer next week. Like a quant- some sort of a quantum solution? Yeah, we've got to get, we've got to get energy from, fuel a, well, is, from a compact source. We need a lot of energy from a compact source. And, and that's, you know, there's ion drive engines. Franklin Chang Diaz, who's a seven-time flown astronaut, brilliant guy from Costa Rica, uh, MIT grad, he set up a company f- using ion drive that could get you to Mars in about 35 days or so because you can fire and you only wow. use a little bit of fuel. You don't have to use huge tanks full of dinosaurs, basically fossil fuel. So uh, that type of thing is is, is where we got to go. But, you know, pr- asking me to predict when an invention is going to happen, I have no idea. Well, and also... Um it's, it's interesting you said that the, you know the war is what really where they were able to throw resources behind jet engine development. Now they're they're really you know because of uh, the, the the commercial way in which our culture works. You there really has to be a financial reason for people to invest billions of dollars sure. that they are hoping to I guess eventually get back. Rather than you know mo- most com- most private companies aren't going to go oh we should spend five billion dollars on this just because you know like right. they're going to want to figure out you know so they're really I guess they really do have to figure out how to make it a business, which maybe is part of the downside of privatize uh, well, space travel. Well, it is. There, there's a lot, of, a lot of possibility if you can decrease the cost of getting there. 
uh, using weightlessness to do things that you can't do on the surface of Earth pr- production. Right now, it's not a viable place to set up a factory just because the cost of getting there and getting your products back is so high that it's just not worth it. But if you can get to space cheaply and get back cheaply, then you can start to do things there that that uh, that can only be done there. You know, in products, small things, ball bearings, whatever things that you can make perfectly there that you can't do on the surface. And Branson is trying to do that with with Virgin Galactic. He's not just selling to, you know, Lady Gaga. He's selling to companies that because they can get a few minutes of weightlessness, they can get that early access. And his competitors are doing the same thing. And Elon Musk is doing the same thing. So we've we've got to bring the price down, and that opens up the market, and then all sorts of stuff will follow from that. By the way, I know Lady Gaga said she wants to be the first person to perform live in space. Now, maybe Space Oddity wasn't live because you had this in the footage bag, but I still feel like you beat her to it. (laughs) I I did a concert from space and sang live with uh, just under a million people that all sang the same song that that Ed Robertson of the Bare Naked Ladies and I wrote. Um, uh, It was mostly aimed at students, but we had a million people sing a song live with me from the space station. And for me, it was hugely inspirational, this song about exploration, about what it means to you personally. And all these kids had learned it at school, and they were all out there. It was a a spring day. They're all out in the garden of their school. I keep getting videos of all these little kindergartners out there singing at the top of their lungs with my image up from the space station. It was a really nice uh, nice music project. So not only Lady Gaga. Did Hadfield do it first? He didn't do it for narcissistic reasons. I'm going to be the first. You're like, oh, I would get all these students to come together to promote education. Uh, yeah. so but did he do it in a meat dress? Okay, he did not do it in a meat dress. He did it in a like a, a, a astronaut meat uh, act, like vacuum pack. Yeah. Um, so, oh, by the way, did it? I mean, even though. <laughs> Even though you've been to space and, and whatnot, did, was there any part of you that was freaked out when you realized you were communicating with Bowie? Well, yeah, it was surreal. And with, with William Shatner, it was like, uh, like man, you know, I, I, idol, I was Captain Kirk. I idolized him. And Bowie, I mean, Bowie is, is he's hardly even human, right? He's so iconic <laughs> and so self-recreated constantly that even he is... is doesn't clearly define himself. You know, he's, 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 he's like some sort of mirage of a person. I'm sure he passed himself in the mirror and be like, oh, shit, Bowie. Oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. I'm David Bowie. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the thin white Duke or whoever he is right now, he's a really interesting guy. And so to communicate with him and to have him, he loved the audio version, gave us a green light to do the video, give us permission, and, and uh, you know, it's just surreal for me. But it's also delightful. And... And it's part of the cool part of the business. The same thing that excited me at nine years old to pursue the life that I pursued excited him. He thought this was really cool. This is interesting. This is a new capability. This, this lets us do something we couldn't do any other way. So for me, that, that's just really reinforcing. It's great. So as we're sort of, as we're sort of winding down here, two, two more things. First of all, um, I know you have a book out, which we'll talk about in a sec. But I just want to know your first night back on Earth where I assume you realized again, oh, yes, I'm a bag of water. That's, you know, like <laughs> a heavy bag a of heavy water. A heavy bag of water. Yeah. What, what was the first night sleep like? We land in, uh, in Kazakhstan. Cause I, I, the last time I came, I flew, or I flew on the, space, or the Russian spaceship, which is a Soyuz. So you come into the atmosphere, essentially you're riding a meteorite back to the Earth. And, and just before you hit the ground, this huge parachute opens, but you still thump into the ground like a like a train like a car crash and you roll to a stop and they drag you out and you feel <laughs> awful and oh, you, you're just your body is so messed up i remember thinking the first thought i had after i landed i started to talk to one of the other crewmates i had forgotten that your tongue and your lips have weight i had to lift my lips to talk it was like that level of yeah. of, of infant newly born kind of feeling and the readaptation is brutal. Uh, just getting th- your body forgot how to lift the blood up to your head. Your balance system is all messed up. And so we got out, on, out dragged out of the air, the vehicle, plunked into a chair, put in a tent, threw up, got into a helicopter, <laughs> oh, no. threw up, flew to uh, Caraganda Airport and put on a NASA airplane and then flown back to Houston. And it stopped in uh, Scotland and stopped in Maine, I think, on the way back. So my first night's sleep was actually lying in the back of that airplane. Uh, it's surreal. Um, you know, uh, 
I, actually, I was surprised. The mattress, I was thinking, I'm going to hate mattresses for the rest of my life. I thought, I've floated weightless when I was sleeping. But that mattress, it felt like it was 20 feet deep, and I was immersed in it. It actually felt great. It, <laughs> and every mattress I've laid on since, it's, it's, it's nice. I feel, like, I feel like I'm being hugged when I lay down in mattresses. So maybe Spaceflight gave me a new appreciation for for a mattress. Well, maybe if know. mattress companies would invest in spaceflight. <laughs> <laughs> the zero-G posturepedic. So what, what, what sort of... Um, how do you feel like the experience changed your perspective back on Earth? How did you... You know, did you, did you see life differently? I, I flew in space three times. The first two times were quick. They were shuttle assembly flights. We, we helped build part of the Russian space station Mir, and then I did spacewalks in this one. But the third one w- was a, a very different experience because we were out for so long, for half a year. And so it had the biggest impact on me. And um, about halfway through the flight, you know, I was taking a lot of pictures and, and looking at the world. And at first, you look for places that you know, naturally. Hey, I used to live there. Or, hey, look at that. I can see all of whatever, all of the Great Lakes or, you know, some place. But after a while, you start to see the whole thing. And uh, not just visually, but you start to actually see the whole thing. And uh, I remember taking a picture. I think it was Karachi. I don't know, one of the big cities. And and I, when I just, my hands wrote the little tweet about it, I wrote, I think, this is where uh, 7 million of us live. And... Somewhere along the way, my mind had had switched over to this is just us. This is just some of us. This is where these people are. And Evan, my son, said, ask people what you want them to take a picture of. Ask the world. So I asked the world, and hundreds of thousands of people wrote back and said, take a picture of my hometown because it's beautiful, and I'm proud of being from there, and that's that's who I am, and uh, and I want to see how it looks. They didn't say this out loud, but... I want to see how it looks in perspective of the rest of the world. I want to see how I fit in. And that perspective really was struck home to me, that we are all just doing our best in all these little places around the world with whatever economy and culture that we've grown up with. But everybody is really just trying to do their best in that particular place and have a happy and hopefully a little bit of grace and raise their kids. And, you know, everyone's just trying to get it together no matter where they are. And you get that sense of oneness so that now that I'm back it's it is like just meeting a bunch of people friends that that I haven't run into yet it, the reaction just I treat people I think more as us than I used to as being them and uh, and that mental shift I really like within myself and uh, be a nice one to share as well as I can it is interesting how a, how a physical perspective can create an emotional perspective yeah. that that when you're on the ground with people and sometimes you feel very much like whoa whoa hey give me my space give me my space and then you go up to actual space <laughs> and then you and then you have the perspective of like oh it's a that really it's, is it's a thematic thing that you hear almost every astronaut say when they when they get back to Earth is yeah. just getting the view of everything like particularly yeah. the Apollo guys oh, that got out yeah Buzz to could the moon. cover it up with his thumb yeah. cover cover the so whole world just up see the world from just your thumbnail size. Yeah. You know like, the thing that bums me out the most? Yes, sir. Is that we can't have a Canadian be president of the United States because I feel like... <laughs> well, if we commander. instructed them on how to take over the United States... <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell you how to take us over. We have plans. <laughs> Shh. Leave, what? <laughs> leave Twinkies on the streets. <laughs> so uh, your book, An Astronaut's Guide to Earth, uh, What Going to Space Taught Me About Ingenuity, Determination, and Being Prepared for Anything... Uh, a lot. I, I assume a lot of what we talked about today uh, is in the book that people should pick up and just, uh, just uh, kind of give people the experience of what what it was like. It it is. There's lots of space stories, you know, and people are interested. You know, what's it like and what's the cool stuff that happened? And you know, the time I was blinded during a spacewalk or when I had a live snake in the airplane with me that was a big surprise that day. That type. There's a lot of cool stories. I used to live at the bottom you of the live ocean. Indiana Jones. No, I lived at the <laughs> bottom of the ocean for a while and. So I use those stories, but what what really matters is life on Earth. And so I tried to pick out all of that experience. What is actually useful or interesting to people? What what did I learn to fly in space that can be maybe of use to somebody on Earth? Or what perspectives does it bring? Or what skills are there? And that that's the purpose of the book. And it's it's I mean it, within a week it was a New York Times bestseller. So it's pretty gratifying for well, first time not, that's author. That's not surprising at all. And and I think. Um, 
you know, hearing about how the um, it, to be an astronaut like yourself requires essentially the mashing up of so many disciplines, this sort of interdisciplinary training, that having that and then coming back to Earth and being able to, you know, like just learning the skill set of, oh, taking something you learned from this discipline and applying it to this com- seemingly unrelated thing. Yeah. And something that's that people don't see all the time, astronauts, you're commanding the space station, and then you come back, and then you go back to work in the office, and now you're like the assistant deputy in charge of payload safety. And, you know, three months ago, I was commanding the spaceship, and now I'm here, I'm a family escort, or, or taking care of the, the spouse and kids of, a, of someone else's servant on the space station, and climbing up and down the ladder on a repeated basis in a really demanding high-skill environment is something most people don't do in life. You work your way progressively up, and you view yourself as a failure if you have to take steps down. And that mental reinforcement of, uh, of putting your own peaks into perspective while still contributing to something that you believe in as being worthwhile, it's not normal. And, and, but it's it's it, you know it's counterintuitive to normal life, but it's really typical in our business. And in the book, I tried to talk about a bunch of that stuff that I even forgot was unusual, just because it's the life I've been living for a quarter century. But uh, a lot of people are finding it um, intriguing and useful, which which is really gratifying to me. Well, you've been a phenomenal guest. This was an incredible chat. And uh, please, when you come back through town, come back on, or let us take you to dinner, or hug you, or something. We'll go to Canada. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll all the way to Canada. To Canada. To see you. Come to Toronto. We, we I, got, love, I, I was, I was in Toronto. Toronto. We got wine. We got maple syrup. It's a great place. I know. Come well, to was, Tim Hortons. You'll I, like it. I, I've oh, been to Tim Hortons. We know the Tim Hortons. Hey, and, and the cool thing is, we just turned out a new five dollar bill, and. Um, my picture's on the five. What? I'm, yeah, I'm on the what? five. So You're yeah, on money? I'm on the five. Yeah, See, here so. I was about Move to over, say, like, kids yeah. playing hockey on a pond. <laughs> <laughs> now it's just a spacewalker, but but still, there haven't been too many of us. So yeah. My gosh! So, congratulations. Yeah. So come on up. Bring a five with you. You can go to Tim Hortons. It'll be great. Do you know great. how I describe Toronto? I describe Toronto as uh, Gotham City if Batman was good at his job. <laughs> real also, clean, real big, and pretty. Also, yeah. Gotham City or New York if someone had planned it a little better. Like, sure. Actually, sat down and go. Okay, let's make the uh, grid clean and let's make sure all the I buildings. Love Toronto. Toronto's a good. Toronto's Toronto's an excellent town. I'll come visit. Um, but not just as a Canadian, but also expectations is in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, expectations. I had a, I had a couple not great. Well, listen, it's uh, we still go. We don't go there. <laughs> but, but I do want to say, you know, not just you're not only a service to, to Canada, but also to humanity in general. So I hope you. I mean, you're obviously a, a very humble fellow, and you really, I, you seem to be like, well, I'm just in service of humanity. But you obviously know that you that humanity owes you a tremendous debt. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I cannot well, thank nice you enough. Nice of you to say. And uh, people should go pick up an astronaut's guide to, to life on earth uh and follow uh cmdr underscore hadfield are you gonna twitter. promote your twitter account to colonel uh there's, <laughs> there's lots of people follow my twitter account it's all right yeah they, it's okay. they, they let you so how often now that you get to update your your, your facebook status update commander just promoted to colonel <laughs> But also, it's, it's, it's no surprise why the Reddit community loves you so much, too. It's just being interactive and being available and being... Yeah, I think know. I'm going to do another AMA shortly, talking nice. about stuff that's going on now. It'd be nice to do. So I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, uh, congratulations. And, and also thanks to, uh, to your sons, uh, Evan and Kyle, for uh, helping you navigate uh, the social media waters while you were, you know... Uh, thanks. Ab- above the earth. <laughs> I was away. And uh, thanks to Toronto. <laughs> Yeah, Toronto. Really great. Love it or list it is made in Toronto. Oh, stop it's it. A great yeah, spot. It's a good show. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think we can say very sincerely, uh, enjoy your burrito. That's how we end the podcast. All we right. tell everyone to enjoy their burrito. But this was lovely. I made a space burrito while I was up there. Tracy you, Desjardins, wait, what? right? You what? Made a space burrito. There's a, I made a video about it with Tracy Desjardins and Adam, Adam Savage, in fact. We made a space burrito up Enjoy there. your space burrito. What was the, in the space burrito? Uh, uh, beans, uh, red beans, and some hot sauce, and some rice. And it was Tracy's uh, recipe. It worked out really well. And, 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 it, and it floated around. It was, <laughs> it was weightless. I gained no weight in the eating of the burrito. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. 
Just you wait. Auto Trader.